My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JomoCast, a podcast for founders and creators seeking joy in a digital age. Jomo is the joy of missing out on the right things. Things like toxic hustle, comparison, and digital drain to make space for life-giving commitments that bring us peace, meaning, and joy. What if there was a simple shift in thinking that could shorten our to-do lists, streamline bureaucracies, make cities more livable, and mitigate climate change? University of Virginia professor Lydie Klotz reveals there is, and it's taught in kindergarten, subtraction. In his new book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, and in his widely shared co-authored paper, which appeared on the cover of Nature, Claude shows how we systematically overlook the simple act of removing things when trying to improve elements of life, work, and the world. We default to fixing through adding. This sounds like a conversation for the JomoCast. Subtract builds on Klotz's pioneering behavioral research, pinpointing how and why we underutilize this fundamental approach to problem solving and offering tools for readers to put the minus sign to use in their lives. But Subtract is more than actionable advice. It's also a lively intellectual tour of this simple yet powerful idea, introducing readers to design geniuses, Nobel Prize winners, rock stars, and everyday heroes who have subtracted to dismantle bias, advance knowledge, tell better jokes, and heal the planet. Lydie Klotz is a professor at the University of Virginia where he directs the university's Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative and is appointed to the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. His research on the science of problem solving has appeared in both Nature and Science and has been covered in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, among other national newspapers on five continents. Lydie joins me today to talk about the power of subtraction in a culture of more. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Lady. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Christina. It's great to be here. Where am I speaking to you from today? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, actually in my office for one of the first times in the last couple of years. Ooh, how does that feel? It's interesting because it's all closed up. I mean, I, the people aren't coming to visit in the office because that would be like a really high risk activity. So it's basically like my home office moved to campus, but it is amazing to be able to walk around campus and see students walking around. That's a huge uptick in my life and the joyfulness in my life. So awesome. So I'm going to get right into a couple of rapid fire questions, just oh, a little bit more on the personal side to kind of help us get to know you a little better. So on a Saturday morning... We can find you where? Running. Running. I mean, running first thing to clear my head and get ready for the day and then hanging out with kids, whatever they want to do. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Awesome. Okay. What gets you up on Monday morning? I love my job. I'm fortunate to have a job that I like as much as, I mean, in different ways than my weekend activities, but I'm eager to get going and get to work on Monday morning. I love creating and sharing ideas and being able to work with students. It's just all really fun stuff. That's amazing. What's one thing people wouldn't know if they followed you online? 
that I'm super introverted. Hmm. I think this is a pretty common thing with people who, um, you know, cause th- when people see me, I'm being extroverted <laughs> because I'm teaching or writing or doing something that's trying to communicate with people. But I'm also, you know, an introvert in that I kind of regenerate when I'm by myself. What brings you the most joy in life and how do you prioritize it? It changes. I mean, right now with a two-year-old and a six-year-old, it's like, it's impossible to beat that, but that's kind of, you never know either. Right. So I could spend four hours with my six-year-old and three and a half of those will be really frustrating, but half an hour of it'll be (laughs) like joyful in a way that it could never be otherwise. And so that's what it is right now. And then you know, in terms of prioritizing it, it's for me, it's just a matter of time allocation. Like I played golf a lot before my first was born and just haven't played golf <laughs> since he was born. It's like, I can do that again after I don't have this unique opportunity that these these little ones are bringing me joy. Mm. So right now it's the, the kids and prioritizing it is just thinking really carefully about, you know, how I'm how I'm allocating that the most scarce resource, which is my time. Thanks so much for that. Of course. Well, let's get right into talking about your amazing new book, Subtract. The inspiration for this book came as you were playing with Lego with your son. When a bridge was uneven, he evened it out by removing a piece from the longer side rather than the go-to move for nearly everyone, which is adding a piece to the shorter side. In our lives, our work, and our society, we overwhelmingly add, you write. What makes us want to solve problems by adding rather than subtracting? You know, that's such a great story that the bridge example, number one, because it's got a cute three-year-old playing with Legos. But number two is that that was the inspiration for the research we did. And after tens of thousands of hours of research, what we found can be mapped pretty closely to what happened to me in that moment. And so basically my instinct was to add a block and I was going to add the block. And the only reason that I didn't is because my three-year-old who is not actually a good subtractor. He's just (laughs) plays a lot of Legos and he had stumbled across it in this moment, but he showed me this option that I never would have thought of. And so the reason why this happens, you know, what our science shows is that people think to add first and then that's a good enough solution, right? Oh, that made the bridge level. Let's move on. And, And we never think that, hey, maybe subtracting could have also made this thing better, whether it's a bridge or whether it's, um, your calendar, your schedule, or whether it's the ideas that are in your head, we have the same kind of instinct. Okay, what can we add? What can we add? What can we add? And then we move on and don't consider subtracting. So yeah, that's the fundamental problem is just that we think of adding first. And if we can also think of subtracting, then we'll have twice as many options. You cover a lot of territory in the book, but if you could just sort of summarize for us, where does this impulse to add come from? Uh, it could come from a lot of places. I mean, there's, like you said, chapter two, three, and four, I mean, talking about evolutionary reasons for this, cultural reasons for this, and then kind of socioeconomic reasons for this. I mean, evolutionary, it's been an advantage to acquire food, right? And to acquire things um, that's helped us pass down our genes. Uh, Culturally, when you think about how we've built civilizations and, you know, just for most of even civilized history, there haven't been very many opportunities to subtract, right? You're dealing with a open 
piece of land and the thing to do is to add a city there right and now our options of like oh hey let's create a pocket park or let's create uh, more green space in the city those are relatively new options so culturally it's been advantageous to add in a lot of ways and then of course economically this kind of system that rewards growth is also a contributing factor and this is the same thing with any kind of behavior there's multiple reinforcing reasons for it and i think all of those things probably combine together each a little bit making it so that we have this first instinct to think of adding and that causes us to overlook subtracting and of course we haven't even talked about yet all the times when we might think of subtracting and then not choose it do you have internet fatigue Are you bored of doom scrolling? Do you wish to live life outside of an online algorithm? Do you wish for better conversations? Do you want to get your creativity back? Then my new course, The Jomo Method, is for you. This program aims to be a helping hand to anyone wanting to take a step back and consciously change up their online habits. A year ago, I first opened the doors to a small group of students and have since helped designers, marketers, educators, and executives around the world. People working at Shopify and Adobe, people in Australia and Portugal, Brazil, and the USA. I've helped them take back control of their digital lives to do their best work and live with more joy. Do you like the sound of that? The Jomo Method is built right out of the insights I've gained over the past 10 years studying the intersection of technology and joy. The truth is, people who are happy with technology use it differently. And I want to show you how. Learn more by joining today at christinacrook.com forward slash waitlist. That's Christina Crook dot com forward slash waitlist. I can't wait to see you there. I go right to the book for a second because there's a page that I really was struck by where you talk about how it can be harder to show competence by subtracting and use the example of there's no proof of the few shared file folders I managed to prune away. No matter how beneficial an active subtraction is, it's not likely to leave as much evidence of what we've done. That seems like an important part of why we choose not to subtract. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you brought up the file folders. I bet. <laughs> and it's surprising because this, it wasn't surprising to me, this desire to show competence. And it's like, I recognize that in myself. I mean, as a writer, you're sitting there writing all this stuff. And one of the hardest things to do is to get rid of something that you've already written. And, you know, whether you're writing a book or writing a report for a teacher, that's, I did this thing, by golly, you're going to see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, we need to get help with that with editors and with ourselves. But, I was surprised how, when I started researching into this like desire to show competence, how evolutionary that was. Um, and so, you know, the file folders, I draw a parallel to the bowerbirds building nests. These are the birds that build ceremonial nests. And so the male bowerbird will build a fancy nest. And then the female bowerbirds are going around looking at the nests and then they decide which male to mate with based on how much they like the nest. And you're like, that kind of makes sense because if a male can build a good shelter, that's evolutionary advantageous. But 
they don't actually use those nests for shelter. <laughs> After the female mates with the male, the female goes off and builds a nest to raise the kids. And so the whole point of these first nests is just to show that the male is effective at interacting with the world. It's like, hey, I can do things in the world. And so we all share that desire to display competence. And exactly like you said, Christina, the challenge is it can be really hard to show competence by taking things away, right? If you take a piece off of the nest, nobody's going to notice that you did that. But if you add the file folders or add the, the piece of writing, that's visible evidence that you are able to, to interact with the world. Mm. So that's where that comes from. I mean, it's not hopeless. I do think that you can show competence by subtracting. It's just that it seems like you might have to do more of it. Mm. So you have to subtract enough so that people can say, oh my goodness, look at Christina's website. It's so like stripped down and simplified that like she clearly knows what she's doing with her website design. So you can do it. It's just that I think you have to subtract more so that your competence is noticeable and you're subtracting. It got me thinking about the relationship between competence and capacity. And the reason why I'm thinking about that is because I made this big discovery earlier this year when I was writing my new book, Good Burdens, that the definition of burden is actually the capacity of a ship. So I've like been thinking a lot about competence and capacity and how those things relate to one another. And you wrote, it can be harder to show competence by subtracting. I think that a lot of this conversation around subtraction is actually creating capacity. It's creating capacity, more mental capacity, more social capacity to go deeper in relationships, to think more deeply. So not so much a question there, but sort of a, a bit of a reflection in terms of that relationship between competence and capacity, or even the relationship between subtraction, creating capacity. That's fascinating. I think that there, and this is an argument I make in the book, that there's actually an advantage with this kind of you know, like good burdens, hard work thing with subtraction, right? And so like the psychology of optimal experience is basically that what you're doing is really closely matched to your ability to do it, right? So you're kind of working at the mm. edges of your ability, but you're not beyond your ability. Right. And, and it seems like subtracting, I mean, if you think of it in terms of writing, for example, writer's block is when you can't think of anything to add. And that's a really annoying situation to be in. And there's nothing fun about that. But once you get to having all the words down, and it's just a matter of editing, that can be a pretty pleasurable experience because it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's challenging, but now you're figuring out a puzzle. Everything's right there in front of you, all the words, and you just got to kind of move them around. So it's hard, it's challenging, and you're subtracting. So there's that piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then I do think that idea of um, having capacity as a display of competence, it's not in the book, I know, but I think it came up in conversations that I've had with people afterwards. It's just the different societies where basically having not necessarily leisure time, but just like capacity is a that's the way you display wealth, basically wealth, mm. whether or not it's economic wealth, or just like, Hey, this person has their shit together. <laughs> I mean, like, Oh, look at that person. They have all this free time. Maybe it's not free time, but look at all this other stuff they're able to do. Whereas mm. it seems like at least the cultures that I'm a part of are prize more of this busyness, right? It's like, look how busy that person is. They must be important or they must really have their act together. And so somehow it, this has gotten flipped where we're kind of, prizing the wrong thing. But yeah, that sounds fascinating. I love <laughs> good burdens is um, I played around with having good subtractions in the title because, hmm. you know, you've got this cover of a book that everybody's going to draw their first impression from. And then burden is like this 
negatively balanced word the same way subtract is, right? And so by putting good in front of it, you kind of steer around that and help people understand what you're talking about. But I love that idea. And I do think that figuring out how to create these technologies that actually work with our psychology, right? Work with the way the things that actually bring joy to us, which is like, hey, hard work is actually fun in a lot of cases. That's mm -hmm. really compelling idea. Thanks. I want to get to the next question, which is that we hear a lot about minimalism and the power of less, but I would like for you to explain to us how subtraction is actually different from that. Yeah. I mean, minimalism is the destination, right? And subtracting is the way to get there or to get any other place. And so I think what happens is perhaps the reason that we don't subtract as much as we could is that we kind of confuse the two, right? And you can be a minimalist without subtracting. You can just not add a lot of stuff. Right. And this becomes a problem though, when you're already overloaded, right? So if your calendar is full of stuff and you just stop adding, your calendar is still full of stuff. And so subtracting is the action. And that's why, you know, talked about the title of the book. That's why the book is titled subtract, because it's like, there's so much focus on this end state of, oh, how do we get to the clean closet? Or how do we get to the streamlined schedule? And this act of getting there is the thing that we're we're overlooking. Use the example in the book of a study where participants were given an itinerary to explore Washington, D.C. <laughs> they did have a choice to see less sites on their day of touring, but instead almost everyone chose to include every available option on the list. This choice created a breakneck day of sprinting from one museum to the next rather than a leisurely day exploring a few locations. And you write, did people willingly choose hectic travel itineraries or did they fail to even imagine free time as an option, people add to their detriment. Why is it that most people make this choice? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the itinerary study was so ridiculous. So we, after the Lego epiphany, we had this whole series of studies and we we're showing it and, you know, giving people Legos. And of course they added and giving people grids on a computer screen. And of course they added and the itinerary, we we're actually thinking, Hey, maybe people are going to subtract from this one. Cause it was, there's literally 14 things that they were doing around Washington DC in one day. And these were big things like visit the Smithsonian. And we gave it to them in a drag and drop interface and people still overwhelmingly added. And so, yeah, it does seem in that case where you know, it's we don't have conclusive evidence from that experiment because we never went back and asked people, hey, did you actually think about subtracting? But it seems like they didn't even imagine subtracting as an option in that case. And that's, you know, totally ties into this fear of missing out too, right? I think. Absolutely. In subtract, you say adding too much and not subtracting enough is ruining real lives. Just as stress is linked to overeating, stress relates to adding objects. You say we're subtraction blind, so maybe we need a gateway experience to get us hooked. If you wanted to turn someone on to subtraction, what would you encourage them to try first? Fewer emails is a really practical one, especially as a gateway experience. Just, you know, batch when you're sending them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe check twice a day. And what you'll realize is that you start receiving fewer emails. A lot of the emails that you were going to attend to 
got fixed. As you kind of compress that time that you have for emails, you realize what you can do with the other time, whether it's hanging out with kids or doing some other work-related task. Mm. So that's one, a less intuitive one that I've really enjoyed is to stop writing down as many notes. And this is in some of those Mm. productivity books. And I don't think it works for every situation, but the basic idea is like, if something's important, you're going to remember it, right? I don't need to write down every note from this conversation. I'm going to remember the the good burdens and this notion of capacity. Like, so writing down fewer notes is another subtractive mm. self-help tip that I have seen benefits from. And it seems a little bit more counterintuitive. I might take a baby step, which is to let myself throw them away after the conversation. <laughs> Cause I do yeah. like to sort of jot. Yeah. Um, even yesterday I was doing a call and I, you know, I had this whole page afterwards and I kind of looked at it after and was like, yeah, I don't really need this. So just having that freedom, right, to recycle that, I guess the next step would be not writing them at all. That would be interesting. You could do that systematically, right? You could look and see if there's a pattern when you're getting rid of the stuff. Mm. Are any of these things useful? And then try to only write down the useful ones in the future. Yeah. What I found when I was going through my notes is it was like, you know, there were some that it was like, okay, I remember this, but I remember it. It's not because of the note. And then other ones where I didn't remember it. And I couldn't figure out why it was important, which Mm. it's like, well, that (laughs) clearly wasn't that important. Wasn't that important. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that uh, series of questions. Those are great suggestions that kind of leads us directly into my next question, which is around the digital space, which is probably the most overwhelming for people these days. Yeah. So cell phones, email and social media have deluged us with more information than ever. How can we put the untapped science of less to work in our digital lives and maybe less abstractly? How do you do that in your own life? Yeah. I mean, I try to the same thing that I do with email, try to do with Twitter in terms of, okay, only check it at certain times. But it's hard because I mean, there's great benefits from these things, right? I mean, so I've been able to connect with people I'd never otherwise be able to connect with and learn from because of Twitter. So I don't think it's this kind of absolute, oh, don't use these forms of social media, but really thinking about how they're matching up with your own personal priorities, Mm. not the other way around, right? Let your priorities shape your use of the information as opposed to let the information (laughs) determine your priorities. So that's a somewhat practical. I'm trying to think if I have any other tips that other people may not use with those things. Can I share two things that you've already written the book that might kind of help spark that? Okay, so two of them are two ideas around digital use. You wrote less bandwidth meant less subtracting. Oh, yeah. That wasn't in reference to digital, but I think that might lead us into something interesting there. Oh, yeah. Less bandwidth meant less subtracting. Well, and this is like this horrible feedback loop, right? So in our experiments, we wanted to test whether people were in fact not thinking about this, right? So that this was this heuristic that we have, this default setting in our brain where we say, okay, what can I add? And one way to check for these default settings is to put people under even more cognitive load, right? So you're distracted by something else, you're even more likely to rely on this default wiring. And so the way we did that in the experiment, we had a scroll of numbers going across the bottom of a computer screen while they're doing the task. And with the scroll of numbers, people are supposed to respond every time they see a five, you have to press an F. 
I was really stressed out just reading these <laughs> directions. <laughs> I was like imagining it being like, I would be completely useless at this experiment. Yeah, that's, I'm amazed that anybody can do it at all. So when they're trying to do two things at once, right, they became even less likely to subtract. For our experiments, that was great evidence that, okay, this is like a heuristic that we just go straight to adding. But for practice, you know, it suggests, hey, we need to give ourselves more cognitive space to think. But it also points to this like really dangerous reinforcing feedback loop, right? Where our first instinct is to add. And if we add, we overload ourselves even more, which is making us more likely to add, right? So we acquire this information. Now we're inundated with more information and our instinct is going to be to add more information. And so we've got to be able to break away from that because that's really dangerous. Yeah, that's why I have found in my own life and one of the things I teach in the different programs and things that I run is actually a digital house cleaning on a weekly basis. Weekly. So we're regularly, it used to be monthly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't enough to, on a weekly basis, just clean out social media accounts, email subscriptions, all files, all of these things to keep them in regular alignment with those values and goals that you were talking about before, Mm -hmm. right? Regularly aligning your technology use with what you're ultimately trying to achieve. And that to me is the only sustainable way I have found so far to keep that bandwidth, yeah. to keep that capacity consistent. Otherwise, it just, it's that constant, right? It just encroaches and encroaches until a point where it's unsustainable. And then it's too exhausting to even think about like pulling yourself back out. There's something around the regular maintenance of it that seems important to me. Yeah, I've been thinking about that because like 90% of my emails now are things that I don't read. I just immediately delete them. And I've been wondering, is it worth the time to like unsubscribe from all of these things? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Good. (laughs) Do it. Awesome. Right after this, I will be doing that. But what do you do to maintain Twitter? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, sort of similar to what you were saying earlier. I mean, I find benefit from those platforms in small doses. So I don't have hard and fast rules around checking. If I'm checking the platforms more than once a day, honestly, then it's kind of a check for me. Like, why? Right. I do lean towards being a creator on social media platforms versus a consumer. I had an interesting conversation on the podcast. I'll send it to you after this. I think it was with Kunal Gupta. He's the CEO of a tech company and is very deep in the mindfulness space around digital mindfulness in particular. And he did this exploration around the number of people that are creators online and consumers and the people that are creators and consumers. And it's like the tiniest percentage of people that are only creating and not consuming. And it really pushed me and challenged me to want to primarily just be creative in those spaces and not really a consumer. So... I don't know if that answers that question, but yeah, that's kind of how I think about that. That's what I do, but I feel selfish when I do it. <laughs> it's like, I'm not using this, but I guess, I mean, somebody needs to put this stuff out there, right? This is it. I don't know how to have a good conversation on Twitter. I think there's people that are just wildly gifted in that space. Mm-hmm. God bless them. I am not one of them. I don't know how to have like a normal conversation publicly Yeah, in that way. Maybe that's my introverted nature, but yeah, it's definitely a fine art. Yeah. You also related to this conversation around digital use and subtraction, you wrote to subtract information and accumulate wisdom. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about that a little bit? I mean, there's a long history of this uh, having too much information. I mean, of course, Twitter's a new thing, but the notion that we've got more information than we can process all of it is not a new notion. And so to gain 
knowledge, add things every day to gain wisdom, subtract things every day. That's a quote that's attributed to Lao Tzu. So that's two and a half millennia old. And there's been similar reminders throughout history. Um, and so I think, you know, yeah, it's a cool quote and it's a good thing to, to remind yourself of. But the thing that's interesting about it in terms of like subtracting information from a academic standpoint or a historic standpoint is like, hey, this has been going on for a long time. There were scholars who, when writing became possible, people were really leery about that. And Seneca, I think, wrote, wrote a warning about, you know, too much written information is going to make people mentally lazy, basically. And so... Surprise! Yeah. <laughs> he was right. Yeah. <laughs> Just ahead of his time. Yeah. So anyway, and I, I, but I do think that, you know, the same tip that Lao Tzu has still works today, right? Is to think about, okay, we've got access to all this information, which that's not a problem. Information in the information age is no more a problem than iron was in the iron age, right? It's this great privilege that we have, right? but we've got to be the owners of it. And we've got to remember that one of the things we can do with information is to take it away. And you know what that looks like maybe is spending time each week, uh, maybe on your uh, digital house cleaning, you could also tack on half an hour where you're thinking, okay, what ideas, you know, kind of can I subtract from my mental models? Mm. Because, you know, this is how we kind of compile information, right? Is you've got your mental models of how the world works. You take in some new information and you revise your mental model accordingly. It's very rare that we actually remove stuff from our mental models. But I think if you, not I think, if you can remove things from your mental models, if you find things that, hey, I used to think this, but in fact, I've been shown that it's not the case. That's a really powerful mode of learning. And what our research suggests is that that's not what we would do naturally. So setting aside time for that is something that I try to do and also could be beneficial in terms of dealing with all this information we have and doing a little bit better job of taking ownership of it and giving ourselves a better chance of turning the information into into wisdom. I love that example. I've written it down as a reminder for myself, and I'd love to share it with my community beyond those listening right now. Uh, subtracting from mental models, I, I can't help but think though that we need to sort of replace a belief with a new belief. Is that true? Is it possible just to remove the mental model? It's hard. I mean, so there's this whole like kind of trend in education research and science education that was about moving misconceptions, common misconceptions that people would bring to a, a topic, right? So people come in and maybe if you think that the sun revolves around the earth, right? That would be a misconception. That's not necessarily one that people still have, but there are these common misconceptions that people would bring. And rightfully so, the education scholars would say, well, the first step is to get rid of these misunderstandings. And they spent years trying to do that and focused on removing these misconceptions. And it's just really hard thing to do. What we tend to do instead is take the new piece of information and then modify what we know to accommodate it. You know, this is a silly, a funny example, but it's how it works. I mean, so my son is a Santa Claus believer and he got Legos for Christmas from Santa Claus, which was his parents' mistake. And he looked at me and he said, well, how did Santa Claus give me these Legos? I mean, I thought he doesn't have like plastic manufacturing capability. I, he just does like wood and stuff. Oh, but doesn't he? I said for stuff like that, Ezra, Santa works directly with Amazon. And Ezra was like, great, perfect. Because he already knew that Amazon delivers- Jeff Bezos is yeah, Santa Claus. Amazon delivers this stuff to my house. And so 
he didn't have to change because the resistance here is like you don't want to change all this you know this mental model that you already have this thing that you already believe and so it's easier to just kind of accommodate the new information instead so yeah in fact it is really hard to remove things from our mental models but i do i don't think it's impossible i mean i think if you can hmm. i think that's an important point with all of the subtracting yeah you know that it's just not our first instinct it's not like it's impossible and if i do think if you have dedicated time and you're a thoughtful person your listeners are thoughtful people and you think about okay i just you know this is a thing that i thought before i just don't think it anymore or it's been shown to not be true, then I do think we can kind of pull these things out of our mental models. I like that pushback. I like the idea that we can just subtract yeah. and not add something back in. That's yeah. awesome. It, it leaves capacity, right? <laughs> yes, it does. Nice full circle there. This is the Jomo cast where we explore how embracing the joy of missing out on the right things helps us thrive in the digital age. How would you define Jomo or what does Jomo mean to you? Maybe like being comfortable in your own skin. So I think that's part of when I am able to be happy not doing everything that is often at the root of it, which is, hey, you know, I know I'm not doing everything. I know there's cool stuff out there that you know, I'm not participating in, but I really am confident that I have spent the time and thought and effort to figure out the stuff that I like. And here I am doing it, doing it. And this is awesome. Yeah. So I think that's a kind of that independent nature of it and that like individualistic nature of it. Mm. This is me. (laughs) I like that a lot. Thanks so much, Lighty. Thanks, Christina. It was great being here. This was fun. I learned a lot. (laughs) Same here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review it, or share it with a friend. You're the key to spreading JOMO. The internet is not what it used to be. You need a roadmap to thrive in the digital age. I've created a new free JOMO guide, and it's available now at christinacrook.com. JOMO is the joy of missing out on the right things, but sometimes it's difficult to know what those right things are. I'll guide you through a simple four-step digital house cleaning process to clear away your digital clutter and make it easier to get at what really matters. That's the joy of missing out. Get your free Jomo guide today at christinacrook.com.